I want to invite you to take your Bibles for our Bible study this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 6. If you haven't been with us, we are in a series that we've been going through, and it's the series on the believer's armor. This morning, I want to just start off with a question. If you were to be described by somebody else, or if you described yourself, when it comes to the Word of God, would you be a butterfly, a botanist, or a bee? We're going to answer that by the end of this series, the end of this morning's sermon. But this morning we're talking about one of the different aspects of the armor of God. If you've been with us, you know that in Ephesians chapter 6, we've been reading this most every week and then studying it, starting with verse 10, please, if you follow along. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against the flesh and the blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto yourself the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the devil and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. What we've pointed out already is that God and Christ, Christ the Father together, they have won the war. But like in many cases, the war may be won, but there are still battles happening day by day by day, and it's happening in your family. It's happening in your home. It's happening in your community where these are taking place and we're under attack, we're under, under affliction, we're under temptation because of Satan and his hordes who are trying to destroy us. And so what happens is God says, I've won the war, but you still got to do some mopping up, just like when the, when the armies under, uh, under Joshua went into the land, the promised land. They won the land, but then the different individuals had to mop up the different areas. And so what's happening, God is saying, you still have to fight. You still have to resist. You still have to deal with the temptations that come to your life, your workplace, your family, your home, whatever it may be. And God says, I'll help you by giving you the spiritual strength. He mentions that in verse 10, where he makes that comment, be strengthened in the Lord. He's willing to help you, to give you the strength day by day. But he also gives us armor spiritual armor that we can put on so that we can resist. Now, it does no good that God provides it if you don't put it on. And so what we've been describing the last few weeks is what is some of that armor, what is it referred to when it talks about the belt of truth, honesty, integrity, trueness when you talk about being committed to the Lord. When we talk about the breastplate of righteousness where in the ancient world this is where their thinking was, they thought. This is where the feelings are. You put on Christ-like feelings, thoughts. Day by day, I want to be more like Christ in the way I respond, the way I act, the way I feel. When we talk about the gospel of peace, the gospel of peace is that confidence in the gospel that you are saved, that confidence that you are right with God right now, that confidence that allows you to share the word of God. The shield of faith we talked about last week, running behind the shield that was bigger than this. When all some temptations come, you get behind the shield. When discouragements come, you get behind the shield. You protect yourselves by saying, I'm going to trust God more and more and more. Last Sunday night, we talked about this helmet of salvation, thinking the right way. And that salvation in that context is talking about not getting born again, 
You already are if you're a believer in Christ. It's not getting saved over and over. that You don't have that happen. But it's not even that idea of growing. What we pointed out is the other text that talks about the helmet of salvation in Thessalonians is talking about the hope you have, that confidence you have, putting on in the middle of temptation, putting on in the middle of trials, the thought that this will be worth it all when we see Christ and looking forward to what's in store, that you endure, that the sufferings of this present world, they'll fade in light of the glory that we'll get with Jesus Christ. And this morning we want to expand upon that and talk about just that short phrase, that idea of the sword of the Spirit, taking it, and as the passage says, begin to take and keep on taking the sword of the Spirit. It's a real short phrase. We already read it but it is so loaded with truth. Let me share some of those truths with you. That when we talk about the sword of the Spirit, what we're talking about in this text is the sword that comes from the Spirit, of the Spirit. That idea that the Word of God that he says that comes through God, which gives us the idea, this confidence that the sword of the Spirit is actually the Word of God himself. Well, we know that. We know that the Bible makes it very clear. We believe that, I hope you believe that, that it is God's love letter that God has sent from God himself. And how do we know that's true? Some of you are going to run into it at your workplace. People are going to say, how do you, why do you believe the Bible? How do you know that it comes from God? Let me just run through some very responses that you may have so you can answer wisely to those and tell them, here is the hope that I have that I'm going to share with you, that you can defend the faith. Number one, there's the claims of the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear, says it time and time again, that it is given by inspiration of God. God breathed. The idea in the Word of God that when he writes, he says, I speak by commandment of God. God is telling me to write this. Where we read that prophecy came not by the will of man. They didn't concoct it, but rather holy men of God, they spake as they were carried along. Literally, that's the word. Moved about or carried along in the wind of the Spirit of God. We know that some 3,800 times in the Word of God, you have the claim, God said, thus saith the Lord. There is multiple times that it says, you said, but how does that convince me? Well, if you believe Jesus Christ, then you've got to believe what he said about the Bible. Jesus made it very clear that he called the Old Testament the Word of God. And we shall not live by bread alone, but by the word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said when he was talking about the commandments, he said they were spoken by God. Jesus in his teachings, he made it clear that he believed all these different stories and accounts of the Old Testament. They were true. They came from God. He talks about even creation, Adam and Eve, which suggests that if he believed it, it had to be true. He talks about Cain and Abel and how they went through their experience. He talks about Noah's Ark and the flood. And he says that that's the, similar to when he comes back. We, Jesus wrote about all that Moses wrote coming from the mouth of God. He talks about manna coming from God himself. He talks about Jonah and the great fish. If you have any skepticism or doubts about the word of God, then you have an issue of saying, wait a minute, what did Jesus believe? Jesus believed that the word of God was that which he was to fulfill. Jesus says that it cannot be broken. Jesus could not be mistaken or Jesus is not God. He is not the Lord. And if Jesus believed that the word of God came from God, that's good enough for me to say it came from God. 
So we have the claims of the Bible. We also have the correctness of the Bible. The Bible, unlike any other book, is filled with all kinds of information, vast amount of information spiritually, but also there's multiple other areas that it talks about. The Bible talks about history, and it names names, and it gives cities, it gives coinage. They have yet to prove any of it to be inaccurate. Now there's times where they say, we don't know if we've found the support for it, and then as years go by, they find the support. There's all kinds of questions, you know, about the wells of Bethesda, and all of a sudden, in recent time, they discovered the wells of Bethesda. There was all kinds of questions about the walls of Jericho. Then when they did more research, they found out it was just as the Bible said. It happens time and time again that modern science catches up with the Bible to say, you know what, it's true there, it's true there, it's true there, time and time again. Speaking of science, a lot of different scientific information is given in the Bible. Talks about the universe, talks about how God created, talks about the earth's rotation. They use the Bible to discover the idea of even those paths, the sea currents. We know that in prophecy, the Bible is filled with dozens and dozens and hundreds of different prophecies. None of them has been proven to be, in error, to be inaccurate. All of them that have so far been fulfilled in history are exact. And when you start talking about it, they're very very specific. It is not like some horoscope that says, today you'll have a good day. Well, you, you can read that anything you want. You, know, you open up your Chinese cookie and it says, you are a person that is going to make friends in the future. Well, that's kind of nebulous. But the Word of God says, hey, there's a man by the name of Cyrus. He's going to become the king and he's going to let the Jews go back. That's 400 years before it even happened. You have Daniel stating and talking about there's going to be a kingdom of, of uh, after Babylon, there's going to be Medo-Persia, there's going to be Greece, there's going to be Rome. And he gave it when those countries weren't even, they were countries, but they weren't even playing a role player in the history. And yet it all comes true. You have dozens and dozens of prophecies, especially in the prophets, uh, major and minor prophets about different cities and towns and how they would, they would have their ending. Every one of them came true. Exactly as the Bible said. Jesus Christ, there's 300 different prophecies alone. Plus, about Jesus Christ, where he would be born, who would come to worship, what would happen to him. And many of them, he could not, if he was a human man trying to trick us, he could not have coordinated those things. How would he coordinate his birthplace? How would he coordinate how people would respond on the cross? How would he coordinate the, uh, the idea of being in the grave in somebody else's tomb? And so you have all these specific prophecies that are fulfilled. The chances of the prophecies being fulfilled that we know of already, just the chance, it is so astronomical it's impossible. But it just proves to us one more time, the Bible is God's Word. It's correct. It's consistent. What we mean by that is when you sit down and think that the men who were used of God to write down the Scriptures, they wrote it down in a period of 1,600 years. It covers more history, but in 1,600 years, they wrote it. Over 60 generations, they were writing it down. And of the authors who are writing, there's 40-some different individuals who are writing. They come from different classes. They come from different uh, status of society. They have different education backgrounds. They're on three different continents. They are writing in different languages. They have different experiences. And when you put it all together, they still all agree with each other. There is no contradictions. There is a consistent message. Uh, my friend, just think about it. If you took medical books that were written just 200 years ago, 
and put them by a medical book today, would they be consistent in their treatments? They wouldn't be. They aren't. Okay? If, if you take building engineering books and put them down next to each other, something that might come from just 500-year period ago and compare it to today, they, they wouldn't be saying the same things. If you took manuals that talk about weaponry and warfare, and I know the technology is advanced, but even the way that you would handle it, they're, they're just, they aren't going to be consistent. They aren't going to be saying the same things. The Bible and the Bible alone is so unique that it is consistent. Generation after generation with all that different background comes together and says the same thing. Totally unique. Continuity of the Bible. People can accuse the Bible. They can attack the Bible. They can question the Bible. But generation after generation, the Word of God has stood firm. It has been, un, uh, it's been proven time and time again to be factual, to make effect. Voltaire used to talk about and brag about that idea that he is, you know, after his lifetime, the Bible will be forgotten. And it's interesting, even though some have, have challenged, they've got new proof that says it's true that his own home, where he wrote some of those agnostic and atheistic writings and attacking the Bible, it became a storage place for Bibles that were spread throughout that region in Vienna. So you have this idea of the Bible just being time and time again proving itself, the changes, how the Bible impacts people's lives. People through history, look across this room, because of the Word of God, how it has changed lives. It has, it has impacted your life your family. Only a divine book could have that type of influence. There's one other thought I want to throw with you with this idea. The character behind the Bible, actually the ones who are writing scriptures, we know that God chose men to write the Bible. They were born along by the Spirit. How he did that was miraculous, but he had them write down the exact words. Now, men playing a role, they were either good men or bad men. They were honest men or they were lying. They were trying to deceive us. If they were liars, Think this through. Most bad men lying and writing about themselves and their accounts and they, have, they don't have the integrity to tell the truth, most of them, when they're writing things, they wouldn't talk about their own faults and fall, failures. They would talk about all their successes. But the men who are writing the Bible are talking about how they blew it big time. They denied him. They wanted to call down fire from heaven. They wanted to just keep the kids away from Jesus Christ. Most uh, people who are, who, are, who are evil, they would not say, I'm a condemned man, that I'm going to be rightfully sent into hell if I don't get born again. So when you think about the people that were chosen, God didn't choose bad men. The Bible makes it clear, God chose good men, honest men, humble men to be writing the scriptures. And so as you look, think it through, these men were so honest they revealed their own flaws. They had no, no qualms about sharing about how they failed, how they committed adultery, how they, they might have stolen, how they did different deeds like David had done and the apostles had done. And they write down all about their own flaws and foibles and feebles, you know, actions. They humbly admit that they are condemned sinners. Think this through. God used good men to write down Therefore, the good men that he used who were honest and humble, they, had, they, they were not making a false claim. They were making an honest claim that this was inspired by God. So you go in and say, okay, the Word of God, just, it just loaded. It just reeks of divine authorship. So we have the Word of God that is impacting, and it's not only from God, but the sword of the Spirit suggests it's very powerful. 
It is something that we can use to fend off, to attack Satan. It has that type of spiritual power. Well, the spiritual power of the Word of God, you know about it. You know that it is the power of God unto salvation. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It can divide the bone and the marrow. It, in other words, it can convict you. It can point out things in your life with great power. We know that the Word of God is extremely effective as it ministers. That fits what God said. My word that goes forth out of my mouth, it will not return unto me void. It will accomplish that which I purpose. We know that the Word of God has the power to make you wise unto salvation. And most of you, many of you here, the Word of God has worked in your life, even from a child. For some of you had that blessing of growing up in a Christian home, and it made you wise unto salvation and continues to give you that education. Some of us, it came later. We didn't get born again until we were a little older. But the Word of God is so effective, so powerful. The Word of God is sufficient. It is all we need. Jesus Christ said that we will live by the Word of God to become spiritual. He says, hey, this is what we need for doctrine, the Word of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. How do I live for the Lord? The Word of God is sufficient to give me instruction in righteousness. The Word of God may mature me it is so powerful, it is so effective, it is so sufficient. It is what can grow me to be completely furnished unto all good works. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God that we need to desire that we can grow thereby. It is the Word of God that gives us the direction that we need. So when we start thinking about what do we do? How do we respond? I need some help. I need some encouragement. It's the Word of God that gives the growth, the guidance. It's the Word of God that gives us comfort and hope about the future and about how to handle trials. It's the Word of God that gives us peace that passes all understanding. It's the Word of God that, that gives us that, uh, that promise of well, being in Christ. How do I raise my kids? How do I conduct myself at work? It's the Word of God that gives us all that we need in order to do those things. It's the Word of God that gives you wisdom day by day to handle your affairs, how to respond to the government, how to respond to neighbors, how to handle conflicts. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. My friend, what we need to understand is Jesus then in this text says it's the Word of God that will give you victory over sin in your life, over temptation. It's the Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that can produce those changes that are needed to overcome anything. John Wesley was talking about the time that he was out preaching, and it was in the region of Pennsylvania that as he was preaching, he came across this one fellow who actually came across him and held him up stole what money that he had. Before the man walked away, Wesley said, I wanted to share something with you, buddy. He says, what is that? And he started giving him the Word of God. Not much, but just several different verses. He said, please think on those verses. Think on those verses. It was years later that he came through that area and he preached again. And as he was preaching, one of the leaders of the town came up to him afterwards, shook his hand and said, I'm so thankful that you ministered to my heart years ago. He says, did we ever meet? He says, yeah, I was the guy who robbed you. I was the guy that stole from you the words that you shared with me. They would not let me sleep. That they just kept hammering me and hammering me. And they kept me so that I had no rest. I had no peace. I had to make some things right. I went and uh, turned myself in. And then after I did my time, I ended up becoming a leader and a businessman. And he was one of the leading officials. The Word of God can change people. The Word of God is effective. And so we learn from this text, number one is that the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, which that's very simple. You understand that. You know that. You can read that. But it is only effective. It's only good if we use it properly. 
It is interesting how he describes the use of the Word of God in this text by paralleling it with how the Romans would arm themselves. You see, I don't know about you, but my home where I grew up, when I was a youngster, we had a Bible. It was huge. It was monstrous. It sat on one, one end table in the living room for everybody to see that that is the Burgraph Bible. None of us ever opened it. None of us ever looked at it. It was wonderful for pressing flowers. But outside of that, it didn't hardly do any value. Oh, we would write in birth dates and things like that and family tree. But none of us had no idea what was inside of it. We never read it. We never opened it. It did us no good. But we were very proud that we had a Bible. And we called ourselves very spiritual because we had a Bible in our home. That's the way for some of you. You have a Bible on your bedstand, your nightstand. You might have it on your phone as an app. What good does it do if you don't open it? If you don't use it properly? You know, I know that there's all different types of ways of sharing the Word of God. <clears throat> I'm not so sure just holding up a sign of John 3.16 is what he's talking about in this text. I'm glad that some people do it. I'm not decrying it. But if you look at the text, I don't think that's what he's talking about. It's just having a bumper sticker. It's just having some, uh, some tag. Nothing wrong with it, but is that what we mean by taking up the sword of the Spirit? I don't think so. If you go through with me in the text of what he's talking about is that when we're examining this, let's just take two different thoughts here. Let's keep in mind that the Word of God is of no good to you unless it's used unless you take it up, unless you take to yourselves. And I'm not talking about taking it to church. I'm talking about picking it up and using it personally in your life during the week. The using it where, where it is effective. I'm not talking about having it on your person and, you know, there it is. Uh, I have the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. So I have it in the scabbard. But that doesn't do any good in the attack. And in the moment, that's not what he's talking about, keeping it like this. And so it has to be used properly. To understand what Paul was getting at by the inspiration of the Spirit, you have to understand what he's talking about. When he's talking about the sword of the Spirit, most of us have this in mind. We have this idea of something like this or something bigger, a broadsword. And did the Romans have these? The answer is yes. Their cavalry would have longer ones. They could use this in battle at times with the idea of, man, they would just crush somebody's head with it. So they had broad swords. But when he's talking about the sword of the Spirit in this passage, he is not talking about this. He is talking about this. He's talking about something very specific that is much smaller. Something that is described in Bible times and era. Something that was maybe six to... Six inches, maybe 18 inches in length at the most. It was the same type of knife that Peter used to cut off Malchus's ear. It was commonly kept by the soldiers that what they would do is they would use it in close hand-to-hand -hand combat. I better put it in the sheath or I'll cut myself. In hand-to-hand -hand combat, they could use it when it's very close. It wasn't a long-range weapon. It was when they were in intimate, personal contact. Not when they were in a line, but one-on-one -on -one fighting. And what it would do is they would either keep it on the belt or if it was small enough, they would have it like this, that it was braced or wrapped to their arm, the smaller daggers. And the idea was that what they would do is they would pull it out and they would use it when it's getting really, really intense. So think this through. The sword of the Spirit, 
okay, is the word of God. The word of God in this text isn't the normal word used for the word of God. Normally in the Bible, the New Testament, the word of God is the logos of It's not here. That's not here. He uses a different word that is used occasionally. It's called rhema. That's the word. It means smaller portions or statements or, or briefer amounts. It's not talking about having the word of God the whole thing. It is the idea of taking verses, taking promises, <coughs> having something on your person that you can use when you are hand-to-hand -hand combat with Satan. It's what Jesus did in the wilderness. When Jesus was tempted, Jesus used Scripture effectively by having it at hand in his mind so he could instantly pull it out in that personal attack by Satan where he responds, the first one, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. When he is then tempted the second time, he is able to say, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. <coughs> and then when he's tempted the third time, he had other scripture in his mind, at his disposal, that he could pull out a dagger and say, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou worship. It's the idea of having Verses, commands, statements at your immediate disposal. Not having a big Bible at home. Not having the Bible on your phone app. Not having the Bible on your lap and not looking at it. Not memorizing it. Not using it. But you taking the Word of God and making it so it's right here. It's right here. It's right here. And it's available for today, for tomorrow, for the attacks. Let's take the third thought here. It is necessary and possible for any and all believers to use the word properly, to use the word this way. The reason I made this statement is because some of you are right now saying, oh, I'm not smart enough to understand the Bible. I'm not smart enough to memorize Scripture. I'm not, I don't have that ability. I can remember sports stats, and I can remember, but I can't remember verses. I can remember bad jokes, I can remember different types, but I can't remember Bible stories. That's not true. That is just not true according to this text. You've convinced yourself of something that Jesus says is not true. He is commanding you take up the Word of God. He's commanding every single believer to take to themselves the Word of God, which means it's possible for you to do. And it's necessary. It is absolutely necessary. This text says... Each one of you put on the whole armor of God. It doesn't say dads put on the whole armor of God for the family. It doesn't say moms put on the armor of God for the wedded couple and the, your kids. It doesn't say grandparents. It says you. Each of you individually. You need to take and pick up the word of God or the armor of God and put it on your person. Those thoughts, that righteousness, the word of God included. Take to yourself the whole armor of God and take, including in that, it is necessary you take the sword of the Spirit. And again, every one of these commands in this text is for every single individual that they must do it. You see, the reason is you put these guys in battle and you put four soldiers in hand-to-hand -hand combat and you say you've got to share one dagger. How foolish. How defeated would that be? You know, the, the only one person that you put your money on is the one who has the dagger. The others you think they're going to lose. For you not to pick up the Bible, not to use it personally, is to go into battle totally without a weapon. And saying, well, somebody else has it. It doesn't do any good if somebody else has it. You have to have it to yourself. 
And God has made it very clear that every single one of us in this room, there's enough rhema to go around. It is effective and it can be complete for you in your spiritual battles that you have. Yours are unique to mine. Yours may be different than mine. But we all have spiritual battles. We all have besetting sins. You need to have the Word of God that addresses your besetting sins so you can resist. You need to have it for yourself. The problem isn't that God doesn't have enough of the Word to go around. The problem is whether we pick it up for ourselves. Or we just assume, Pastor Burgraff will come and preach the Word of God. That'll be enough for the week. You need to take it for yourself. You need to take time to learn it, to study it, to look at it. You say, but I don't know if I can. I don't know if I have that ability. He is talking to an entire church family in this text. This people that he's talking to in the previous chapter, he talks about husbands and wives. Husbands and wives are capable of doing that then, of taking the Word of God to themselves. He is talking to children in the previous chapter. So children are in, the, in fact the pre, that same chapter. Children are capable of taking the Word of God to themselves and memorizing it. Let's be honest about it. Kids can probably memorize more than the rest of us in this room. He's talking in this passage in the, in the same text to slaves. He is talking to business people. In other words, he's talking to some people who have no education, and yet he says you can take the Word of God to yourself. He is talking to individuals who are busy with businesses and jobs and occupied. And he's saying, you have enough time to take the Word of God to yourself. He is talking to Jews and he is talking to Gentiles. Chapter 2 is to that whole blend of people. Gentiles could claim, we don't know the Bible. We've never had the Bible. We didn't grow up with the Bible. And yet he's saying they can take the Bible to themselves. Just like some of us who did not grow up with scriptures. We have been able to take it to ourselves because of the grace of God in giving us Bibles and the Spirit of God giving us knowledge. You can, you should get into the Word and get the Word into you. That's the gist of what he's saying about the sword of the Spirit. He is saying you can and you should get into the Word of God and get the Word of God into you. It can be done. So I ask you these questions. Do you personally take time to read portions of the Word of God? Will you take time this week to read some portion? I'm not asking you to read the whole Bible from beginning to end this week. We're not saying take up the Logos, take up the Rhema. Take up some portions of the Word of God. Will you do that? There's a fellow that I've told you about before that in the late 1800s, he was a foreman working on a crew that they were doing blasting in order to prepare a railway. And when he was there, he accidentally set off, with, he was with somebody, a charge, and the, the cap blew up, and he lost his hands, he lost his sight, his hearing was affected, and much of his face since it blew up so, so quick. He had just recently gotten born again. He wanted to read the Bible, but now he couldn't read, couldn't see, couldn't hear, didn't have hands to learn how to do the Braille. And so he was kind of without any help of being able to read for himself. But he desperately knew that he needed the Word of God for encouragement, for help. Time went by, and through the means of communication, he found out from somebody that there was an individual that learned to read Braille with their lips. So he started to learn. He found out that his lips were damaged. The nerves were damaged, that he didn't have the sensitivity to pick out the Braille. Then he tried by accident when he was doing that and he realized he could feel with the tip of his tongue. 
The man learned a form of Braille, had his Bible put into that form of Braille, and ended up in the next 40 years reading through the Bible four times in its entirety by reading with his tongue and his tongue alone. Are you that determined to read the Word of God? And you have vision. You have hearing. Do you love the Word of God? Are you that determined to say, I'm going to read the Bible? I will get into the Bible and get it into me. That you would make that type of an effort. I ask you this question, do you even take time to ever meditate on the Word of God? We have the teen things, the TNT. We have the Calvary Clubs required to be reading the Word of God on a daily basis. But often what happens is you get in, you read it. Some of you are following calendars. You read it for the sake of just getting through the calendar assignment without meditating, without really reading. You know how that is? Any of you ever do that? You pick up a book, you pick up a Bible, you start reading, and your mind starts with it, your eyes keep going, and your brain is somewhere else until you read the last verse. And then you say, i got to get something out of the last verse. And he, Do you meditate on the Word of God? Let me ask a question. Do you know verses? Have you memorized verses? We talked about this six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. And a lot of you said, I'm going to start memorizing verses. Have you even done it? Are you memorizing verses that might deal with your issue? Maybe your issue is depression. There's verses on it. Maybe your issue is addiction. There's verses on it. Maybe your issue is not forgiving somebody. There are verses about it. Maybe your issue is anger or hatred. Maybe your issue is you just gossip too much. Maybe your issue is an uncontrolled passion or lust. Maybe your issue is not loving in your family the way you should be loving those in your family. Whatever your issue is, there are Bible verses. Have you even bothered to take, look in your Bible, find those verses, write them down, and commit them to memory? Take up the sword of the Spirit. God commands you to do it. And he says, if you would, you'll be able to withstand the onslaughts of Satan. You can have victory if you get into the Word and get the Word into you. That's what he's promising in this text. And so that brings me back to the original question. Which one are you? A writer was talking about how as he was doing his Bible study, he looked out into his garden, and he noticed there in this neighborhood garden, he noticed that there was butterflies, and there was a botanist guy, a neighbor who studied the flowers, and there was bees. And he got to thinking, hey, those, those butterflies, they flutter from here to here to here to here. And he thought, that's exactly the way some people do with their Bibles. They flutter from place to place to Bible study to Bible study, and they just flit and flutter, but they don't spend much time. They just go from hither and yon, hither and yon, touch a little here, touch a little there, touch a little here. Get a little bit of church here, get a little bit of concert here, get a little bit of this. But they don't get a lot. Then there's the botanist who comes, got his notebook, and I love that some of you take notes. I think that's great. For me, that's a learning experience. That's the way how I learn. For my wife and others here, it's better just to listen. But the botanist comes and he you know, does all the study, and that's where I fear some of us may get. We know the facts. We know the trivia. We know about our Bibles. We got, the, we got the college education or degrees or classes or Bible Institute, whatever. And we have the facts down. But then we close the book and go away and it doesn't affect us. 
we are like the forgetful hearer of James chapter 2. Then there's the bee that goes down in, gets the pollen and the nectar inside and outside, covered with it, goes back, and with what he got out of that flower, goes back, works, makes the nest, and has the home, the whole home thing, and produces in the hive. Which one is you, are, are you like? Which one is the one that describes the way you do your Bible study? The way you get into the Word of God? Let, let me rephrase that. Which one describes the way you've been this last few weeks? Flitting and fluttering? Just learning and taking notes? Or actually getting into it and getting it into you and producing? You know which one you should be. You know automatically which one you ought to be. And the Word of God tells us that we need to get into the Word and get the Word into us. I ask you this. Have you committed any of God's rhemas, portions, promises, verses to your memory so you can resist when under attack? Billister talks about how when he was pre-World War II, went into a, a, a village, and his job was, his mission was just to hand out Bibles and to try to witness in one village, another village, another village, day after day after day. And he went into this one village before the Germans came and occupied that area in Poland. He went in and he left a Bible. He found only one man that was available that would take the Bible, and he left. Years go by and he comes back. And when he comes back to that same village, which obviously had been damaged by, by the Nazi occupation, he came back and he ran in to start asking questions if anybody here has a Bible. And he found out that there was one man in town that had a Bible that was given to him years before. He found the guy. They recognized each other. And the guy says, yeah, I, I had my Bible and I've kept my Bible, but it was all tattered and torn. And he said, and so I've been sharing it with a lot of my friends. Billister finds out when he gets his friends together that evening, there are 200 who have come to know Christ as their Savior in this village. 200 that were born again since he was last there from that one Bible. What they did is they've been sharing that Bible between them. And when Billister said, why don't we have some testimonies and share some verses that have been meaningful, the man who he gave the Bible to originally stood up and he said, what do you mean verses? Do you mean chapters? Billister found out that the way they shared the Word of God is they committed multiple segments of Scripture to memory. There was people who knew entire chapters. There was several people, 13 of them if I have the number right, who memorized the Gospels of Matthew and John. There was one person who memorized the entire book of Psalms. Dozens of people had learned the epistles. And when they would get together, that's how they, what they would use for their Bible study, different people standing up and quoting the passages that they had learned so they could all share it. If we had such a service, if your family got together and said, let's just talk about scriptures today, would there be any be able to quote passages? Maybe that's why we struggle the way we do. Maybe that's why in our Christian homes, maybe that's why in our own personal lives we do so much of this. We have excused. We have exonerated ourselves. We have, we have put the burden on others and we have not taken up the sword of the Spirit ourselves. Gentlemen, fathers, dads, husbands, what type of leadership are you providing in your family when it comes to Bible reading, reading, 
and memorizing. Are you setting an example? You are so blessed to have a Bible. I got a letter this past week that kind of really interested me. It was saying, Dear Mr. Burgraff, my name is so-and-so. I am interested in purchasing the property that you own in such and such a place. Your KFC property, I am interested in paying X amount of dollars for the purchase of it. I never knew I owned a KFC property. (laughs) I was so thrilled. I'm going to be able to sell it and have some bucks. It's got to be worth something. I looked it up on the internet. It looked pretty decent. I don't own a KFC. They're mistaken. But you know what? I do own something much better. I own the Word of God. I have copies of the Word of God. I got lots of copies of the Word of God. So do many of you. But the question isn't whether we owe it, own it or not. The question is, does it own us? Is it in our hearts? Is it in our heads? Are you getting into the Word of God and getting the Word of God into you? Will you leave with a commitment that this week I'm going to start doing some Bible memory? This week I'm going to start reading Rhema portions. I'm going to get into the Word. This week as a family we're going to memorize some verse, a verse. Will you do that for your sake and the sake of your family and take up the sword of the Spirit. Father, I pray, help us not just to be hearers of the word, but help us to be doers. This is what you command us to do. This is what you recommend we do in order to have victory. Help us to take this seriously. To not just say good stories, good thoughts, but walk away and say, I'm going to do it. Help individuals in this room to make a spiritual decision to do what you have recommended and commanded us to do this day, this week, this month. If you tarry, help us to become more involved in the Word of God than we have in the past. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, and there's nobody looking around. I can't see those of you who are on live stream. This is between you and the Lord. But right here, I want to pray for any, for all, who would say, Pastor Wayne, I am making a commitment right here before God, that I am going to increase my time in the Word of God, be more consistent this week, and I'm going to do some memory this week. Pastor, here's my hand. Pray for me to do this and to follow through, and I want God to see I'm committing. Here's my hand. Just hold it up. Just hold it up. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes, yes. God, you see the many hands. More importantly, you see the hearts. Help my brothers, help my sisters to be successful in doing this very deed to take in the Word of God and get the Word of God into them. Help them. Bless them for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.